This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Belinda Roussel. The Mysteries of Udolpho by Anne Radcliffe. Volume 4, Chapter 18. Then fresh tears stood on her cheek, as doth the honey-dew upon a gathered lily, almost withered. Shakespeare. After the late discoveries, Emily was distinguished at the chateau by the Count and his family, as a relative of the house of Villeroy, and received, if possible, more friendly attention than had yet been shown her. Count de Villefort's surprise at the delay of an answer to his letter, which had been directed to Valancourt at Estuvier, was mingled with a satisfaction for the prudence, which had saved Emily from a share of the anxiety he now suffered though when he saw her still drooping under the effect of his former error, all his resolution was necessary to restrain him from relating the truth that would afford her momentary relief. The approaching nuptials of the Lady Blanche now divided his attention with the subject of his anxiety, for the inhabitants of the chateau were already busied in preparations for that event, and the arrival of Monsieur Lefroy was daily expected. In the gaiety which surrounded her, Emily vainly tried to participate, her spirits being depressed by the late discoveries and by the anxiety concerning the fate of Valancourt that had been occasioned by the description of his manner when he had delivered the ring. She seemed to perceive in it the gloomy wilderness of despair, and, when she considered to what that despair might have urged him, her heart sank with terror and grief. The state of suspense as to his safety, to which she believed herself condemned, till she should return to Le Valais, appeared insupportable, and in such moments she could not even struggle to assume the composure that had left her mind, but would often abruptly quit the company she was with, and endeavour to soothe her spirits in the deep solitudes of the woods that overbrowed the shore. Here the faint roar of foaming waves that beat below, and the sullen murmur of the wind among the branches around, were circumstances in unison with the temper of her mind, and she would sit on a cliff, or on the broken steps of her favourite watch-tower, observing the changing colours of the evening clouds, and the gloom of twilight draw over the sea, till the white tops of billows, riding towards the shore, could scarcely be discerned amidst the darkened waters. The lines, engraved by Valancourt on this tower, she frequently repeated with melancholy enthusiasm, and then would endeavour to check the recollections and the grief they occasioned, and to turn her thoughts to indifferent subjects. One evening, having wandered with her lute to this her favourite spot, she entered the ruined tower, and ascended a winding staircase that led to a small chamber, which was less decayed than the rest of the building, and whence she had often gazed, with admiration, on the wide prospect of sea and land that extended below. The sun was now setting on that tract of the Pyrenees which divided Languedoc from Roussillon, and, placing herself opposite to a small gated window, which, like the wood-tops beneath and the waves lower still, gleamed with the red glow of the west, she touched the chords of her lute in solemn symphony, and then accompanied it with her voice in one of the simple and affecting airs to which, in happier days, Valancourt had often listened in rapture and which she now adapted to the following lines. To Melancholy Spirit of love and sorrow, 
Hail, thy solemn voice from far I hear, Mingled with the evening's dying gale, Hail with this sadly pleasing tear. Oh, at this still, this lonely hour, Thine own sweet hour of closing day, Awake thy lute, whose charmful power Shall call up fancy to obey. To paint the wild romantic dream That meets the poet's musing eye, As on the bank of shadowy stream He breathes to her the fervid sigh. O oh, lonely spirit, let thy song lead me through all thy sacred haunt, the ministers of moonlight aisles along, where spectres raise the midnight chant. I hear their dirges faintly swell, then sink at once in silence drear, while from the pillared cloister's cell dimly their gliding forms appear. Lead where the pine woods wave on high, whose pathless sod is darkly seen, as the cold moon with trembling eye darts her long beams the leaves between. Lead to the mountain's dusky head, where far below in shade profound, wide forests, plains, and hamlets spread, and sad the chimes of vesper sound. Or guide me, where the dashing oar just breaks the stillness of the vale, as slow it tracks the winding shore to meet the ocean's distant sail. To pebbly banks that Neptune laves With measured surges loud and deep, Where the dark cliff bends o'er the waves And wild the winds of autumn sweep. There pause at midnight's spectred hour And list the long resounding gale And catch the fleeting moonlight's power O'er forming seas and distant sail. The soft tranquillity of the scene below, where the evening breeze scarcely curled the water, or swelled the passing sail, that caught the last gleam of the sun, and where, now and then, a dipping oar was all that disturbed the trembling radiance, conspired with the tender melody of her lute to lull her mind into a state of gentle sadness, and she sung the mournful songs of past times, till the remembrances they awakened were too powerful for her heart. Her tears fell upon the lute over which she drooped, and her voice trembled and was unable to proceed. Though the sun had now sunk behind the mountains, and even his reflected light was fading from their highest points, Emily did not leave the watch-tower, but continued to indulge her melancholy reverie till a footstep at a little distance startled her, and, on looking through the grate, she observed a person walking below, whom, however, Soon perceiving to be Monsieur Bonac, she returned to the quiet thoughtfulness his step had interrupted. After some time, she again struck her lute and sung her favourite air, but again a step disturbed her, and, as she paused to listen, she heard it ascending the staircase of the tower. The gloom of the hour, perhaps, made her sensible to some degree of fear, which she might not otherwise have felt, for only a few minutes before she had seen Monseigneur Bonac pass. The steps were quick and bounding, and, in the next moment, the door of the chamber opened, and a person entered, whose features were veiled in the obscurity of twilight. But his voice could not be concealed, for it was the voice of Valancourt. At the sound, never heard by Emily, without emotion, she started in terror, astonishment, and doubtful pleasure, and had scarcely beheld him at her feet 
when she sunk into a seat, overcome by the various emotions that contended at her heart, and almost insensible to that voice, whose earnest and trembling calls seemed as if endeavouring to save her. Valancourt, as he hung over Emily, deplored his own rash impatience, and having thus surprised her, for when he had arrived at the chateau, too anxious to await the return of the Count, who, he understood, was in the grounds, he went himself to seek him, when, as he passed the tower, he was struck by the sound of Emily's voice, and immediately ascended. It was a considerable time before she revived, but, when her recollection returned, she repulsed his attentions with an air of reserve, and inquired, with as much displeasure as it was possible she could feel in these first moments of his appearance, the occasion of his visit. "'Ah, Emily,' said Valancourt, "'that air, those words. Alas, I have then little to hope. When you cease to esteem me, you ceased also to love me.' "'Most true, sir,' said Emily, endeavouring to command her trembling voice, "'and if you had valued my esteem, you would not have given me this new occasion for uneasiness.' Valancourt's countenance changed suddenly from the anxieties of doubt to an expression of surprise and dismay. He was silent for a moment, and then said, "'I have been taught to hope for a very different reception. Is it then true, Emily, that I have lost your regard for ever? Am I to believe that, though your esteem for me may return, your affection never can?' Can the Count have mediated the cruelty which now tortures me with a second death? The voice in which he spoke this alarmed Emily as much as his words surprised her, and with trembling impatience she begged that he would explain them. Can any explanation be necessary? said Valancourt. Do you not know how cruelly my conduct has been misrepresented? That the actions of which you once believed me guilty, and oh, Emily, how could you so degrade me in your opinion, even for a moment? Those actions I hold in as much contempt and abhorrence as yourself. Are you indeed ignorant that Count de Villefort has detected the slanders that have robbed me of all I hold dear on earth, and has invited me hither to justify to you my former conduct? It is surely impossible you can be uninformed of these circumstances, and I am again torturing myself with a false hope.' The silence of Emily confirmed this supposition, for the deep twilight would not allow Valancourt to distinguish the astonishment and doubting joy that fixed her features. For a moment she continued unable to speak, then a profound sigh seemed to give some relief to her spirits, and she said, "'Valancourt, I was, till this moment, ignorant of all the circumstances you have mentioned. The emotion I now suffer may assure you of the truth of this.' and that, though I had ceased to esteem, I had not taught myself entirely to forget you. This moment, said Valancourt, in a low voice, and leaning for support against the window, this moment brings with it a conviction that overpowers me. I am dear to you, then, still dear to you, my Emily. Is it necessary that I should tell you so? she replied. Is it necessary that I should say these are the first moments of joy I have known since your departure, and that they repay me for all those of pain I have suffered in the interval? Valancourt sighed deeply and was unable to reply, but as he pressed her hand to his lips, the tears that fell over it spoke a language which could not be mistaken, and to which words were inadequate. Emily, somewhat tranquillized, 
proposed returning to the chateau, and then for the first time recollected that the Count had invited Valancourt thither to explain his conduct, and that no explanation had yet been given. But, while she acknowledged this, her heart would not allow her to dwell for a moment on the possibility of his unworthiness, his look, his voice, his manner, all spoke the noble sincerity which had formerly distinguished him, and she again permitted herself to indulge the emotions of a joy more surprising and powerful than she had ever before experienced. Neither Emily or Valancourt were conscious how they reached the chateau, whither they might have been transferred by the spell of a fairy, for anything they could remember, and it was not till they had reached the great hall, that either of them recollected there were other persons in the world besides themselves. The Count then came forth with surprise, and with the joyfulness of pure benevolence, to welcome Valancourt, and to entreat his forgiveness of the injustice he had done him. Soon after which, Monsignor Bonac joined this happy group, in which he and Valancourt were mutually rejoiced to meet. When the first congratulations were over, and the general joy became somewhat more tranquil, the Count withdrew with Valancourt to the library, where a long conversation passed between them, in which the latter so clearly justified himself of the criminal parts of the conduct imputed to him, and so candidly confessed and so feelingly lamented the follies which he had committed, that the Count was confirmed in his belief of all he had hoped, and while he perceived so many noble virtues in Valancourt, and that experience had taught him to detest the follies which before he had not only admired, he did not scruple to believe that he would pass through life with the dignity of a wise and good man, or to entrust to his care the future happiness of Emily Senobert, for whom he felt the solicitude of a parent. Of this he soon informed her in a short conversation when Valancourt had left him. While Emily listened to the relation of the services that Valancourt had rendered Monsieur Bonac, her eyes overflowed with tears of pleasure, and the further conversation of Count de Villefort perfectly dissipated every doubt as to the past and future conduct of him, to whom she now restored, without fear, the esteem and affection with which she had formerly received him. When they returned to the supper-room, the Countess and Lady Blanche met Valancourt with sincere congratulations, and Blanche, indeed, was so much rejoiced to see Emily return to happiness as to forget, for a while, that Monsieur Lefoy had not yet arrived at the chateau, though he had been expected for some hours. But her generous sympathy was, soon after, rewarded by his appearance. He was now perfectly recovered from the wounds received during his perilous adventure among the Pyrenees, the mention of which served to heighten to the parties who had been involved in it the sense of their present happiness. New congratulations passed between them, and round the supper-table appeared a group of faces, smiling with felicity, but with a felicity which had in each a different character. The smile of Blanche was frank and gay, that of Emily tender and pensive, Valancourt's was rapturous, tender, and gay alternately. Monsieur Lefoy's was joyous, and that of the Count, as he looked on the surrounding party, expressed the tempered complacency of benevolence, while the features of the Countess Henri and Monsieur Bonac discovered fainter traces of animation. Poor Monsieur Dupont did not, by his presence, throw a shade of regret over the company, for, when he had discovered that Valancourt was not unworthy of the esteem of Emily, he determined seriously to endeavour at the conquest of his own hopeless affection, and had immediately withdrawn from Chateau Leblanc 
a conduct which Emily now understood and rewarded with her admiration and pity. The Count and his guests continued together till a late hour, yielding to the delights of social gaiety and to the sweets of friendship. When Annette heard of the arrival of Valancourt, Ludovico had some difficulty to prevent her going into the supper-room to express her joy, for she declared that she had never been so rejoiced at any accident as this, since she had found Ludovico himself. End of Volume 4, Chapter 18